All right, let's begin. Good morning. We interrupt your regular Westminster Confession of Faith class. Talk to you about our missions work in the Philippines. So last time we were here three years ago, there were not this many people coming here. And so we are going to introduce ourselves to you. I'm Nate. My wife, Jella, and our baby girl, Jael, is right there. She was baptized several weeks ago. And we are back in the country. This is our last Sunday worshiping with you all, actually, before we go home to the Philippines to continue our work. So I'm going to be telling you about what we do over there. I've been serving in the field over there for 10 years now. It's already been a decade. I first went there long-term in 2009, but I was really hooked on the place when I first visited in 2007. I'll tell you a bit about the Philippines. I had a wonderful PowerPoint ready for you guys, but we're experiencing technical difficulties. So you're going to be looking at this tiny laptop screen instead. The Philippines, as of January of 2019, this year, has a population of about 108 million people. That's what our little archipelago looks like. And as far as surface area, the whole nation of the Philippines is about the same size as the state of Nevada. So that's your point of reference as far as square mileage. It's only slightly bigger than our state. So take 108 million people, cram them into the state of Nevada, add a bunch of water around there. So you have 7,000 islands, and that's how dense the country is. And we live right in the middle of the country on an island called Negros in the province of Negros Oriental. We do not live in Manila. I will never live in Manila. Okay, It's horrible there. The dense, a quarter of the population is in Manila. It's a, you see this black area right here. That's where the most dense population is. We live in the middle. We live in uh, halfway between urban and prov provincial. It's a university town. There's five universities there. The population fluctuates according to the school year. It's a nice place to live, and it's in the top five places in the world to retire. So if any of you are approaching retirement, feel free to come over and give us some assistance. The religious context is very important. Does anybody know what the dominant religion of the Philippines would be? Over 80% of the population is Roman Catholic. The second largest religion, as they tend to group Catholicism and Protestantism together, the second largest religion is Islam. But that's generally concentrated in the very bottom of the country. 6 to 11%, depending on who's given the figure, because it's not exactly safe to go down there and count heads <laughs> and find out the exact number of Muslims. <laughs> 5 to 7% would be evangelical Protestant, and that's 
hard to tell as well. We also have several cults, several indigenous cults. The Jehovah's Witnesses are there, the Mormons are there, the Seventh-day Adventists are there, and there are still Filipino traditional religions there, animism, things like that. So there's a mixture, but it is a Roman Catholic country. The Philippines was part of the Spanish Empire for 300 years, so you have several centuries of Roman Catholicism dominating, and it really shapes the culture, and has come to be identified with the culture. One of my friends who's also serving over there, whenever he would try to evangelize his mother and get her to convert, she would see that as the same as not being Filipino anymore. And so Roman Catholicism is part of the Filipino identity by and large. And fortunately, it even sticks when they will leave a Roman Catholic church and become Protestant. Worldview doesn't change a whole lot, and the Roman Catholic mentality is still, still there, very strong. I would argue that the overall general religious attitude in the Philippines is syncretism. Does anybody know what syncretism, what I mean by that? Religious syncretism. Blending of religions. Yes, the attempted blending of religions. Religions are mutually exclusive. Successfully blending them is impossible, but people try nonetheless. And so Roman Catholicism over there is always mixed with more animistic traditional Filipino practices and beliefs. Because you know how Spain has done it around the world. They go, they find a country, they find the native people with their native pantheistic or animistic beliefs. They mass baptize everybody. The local deities suddenly become saints. And there you go. Congratulations. You're all Christians now. And so the native superstition, native religious views and practices didn't change at all. They just got new names. And so there was a, a blending going on. Um, the Islamic peoples there are the same way. We went and spent some time with one of the Muslim tribes down in Mindanao when we were still studying over there. And their Islam is no, not pure, not even close. I don't think they even had a single copy of the Quran. Yet they called themselves you know, Muslim. Those people call themselves Muslim. But it's syncretized, just like everything else. And unfortunately, Protestants tend to be the same way as far as syncretizing true Christianity with other things. So, for example, you will have Christians of Chinese Filipino descent going to church, but at the same time engaging in ancestor worship. As incoherent as that sounds to us, like, how on earth could you do that? It happens without a second thought over there. Now, Protestantism didn't arrive in the Philippines until America took over the country in the 20th century. So Roman Catholicism was huge over there. Islam arrived several centuries before even Roman Catholicism did. And so Protestantism is late coming to the country. Protestants of both mainline and evangelical persuasions have gained significant growth since 1910 up until this year. 
in the more evangelical, not mainline liberal, but evangelical side of things, there will be about 2.4% of the population. And then the mainline and non-Roman Catholics are about 12 million people total. Liberalism is alive and kicking. Actually, where we live, there is a divinity school at Silliman University founded in 1901, and the Protestants that founded it, if you know your American Presbyterian history timeline, 20th century, that's when liberalism was on the rise in the PCUSA. One of the presidents of Silliman University actually was a signer of the Auburn Confession, for those of you who know what that notorious document was. And they're, they're textbook liberals today, the Divinity School as well as the church at the university. Going right down the checklist, denying the virgin birth, denying miracles, denying the infallibility of scripture, denying eternal life, denying the resurrection, you name it, it's there. And so, despite claiming to be a, in the Reformed tradition, you know, they're not even in the Christian faith. It's a different religion altogether. So we have that to deal with as well. In our experience, most Protestants in the Philippines are not Protestant by conviction. And what I mean by that is they are not Protestant because they believe that is what the Bible teaches. Those views that we label as Protestant coming from Scripture. They're Protestant for some other reason. A lot of them are Protestant for the same reason that other people are Roman Catholic. Their parents were. That was the community they were in. That's the kind of school they went to. It's going to be some other reason besides, this is the truth, that is why I believe it. They'll be nominally or culturally Protestant, just like the majority of Roman Catholics are. And we get a taste of that here in the United States. A lot of Roman Catholics aren't Roman Catholic by conviction. It's because of their family or tradition. It's the environment they're in. That's why. So many Protestants are what <laughs> I've started to call closet Roman Catholics. They don't profess. Yes? The literacy rate officially is very high, but the culture in general is illiterate. What I mean by that is they're indifferent to it. You can graduate with a degree in education from university without ever reading a single book. That's a true story. I have a friend who's done that. <laughs> so so the, literally, the literacy rate on the ground doesn't mean anything. It's, it's whether they're apathetic to it. You guys got past house or not? Nope, I do not. So the, the overall attitude is apathy and indifference. And that just, and that's in general. That carries over into the religious sphere as well. So most, or many, Protestants I call closet Roman Catholics. They retain Roman Catholic theology thinking. Practice, they don't worship at a Roman Catholic church. They might attend a Protestant church, but that's as far as the Protestantism goes. It's not deep. It's not by conviction. It's syncretism, again. So a self-conscious Christian worldview is lacking, which is why we do what we do over there. Now, if Protestantism is general in that way, what about 
Reformed and Presbyterianism. Reformed or Presbyterianism is microscopic in the Philippines. It really is. There are about, that I know personally, there are five confessionally reformed ministers in that country. None of them are where I live, which is a bummer. Very, very small. That doesn't mean there's not denominations that claim to be. There will be denominations that claim to be Reformed, claim to be Presbyterian. It's in the name. On the website, they have the Reformed creeds and confessions. The Westminster Standards will be the official constitution of the church. But on the ground, it makes no difference whatsoever. And their pastors will have never even heard of those documents, let alone read them once, let alone studied them, let alone minister by them and teach them and use them as the bumpers for the bowling lane for their ministry. Those denominations that claim to be Reformed or Presbyterian aren't. They're broadly evangelical, generally charismatic or Pentecostal. On paper, the confessions might be their church constitution, but it doesn't make any difference whatsoever in the actual life of worship, especially of the church. And so the Presbyterian church, if you attend one or a church that claims to be reformed, it's not going to be anything like it would be like you experience here every Lord's Day. Like, what do you expect from a reformed church every Lord's Day? What do you expect to do during a worship service? Preaching? What kind of preaching? Expository, Christ-centered preaching, absolutely. You won't get that over there. Hmm? Hearing scripture, substantially, you won't. You'll hear one verse, maybe two, for that topical, practical message that won't have Jesus in it. It won't even be Christian. What about what you sing? What do you expect to sing? Something that's theologically substantial? You won't get that either. Hymns and psalms, yeah, especially not. They'll be adamantly opposed to singing psalms, which is peculiar. You might follow a more, you might have some historical forms like reciting the Apostles' Creed. We, we, when we were looking for a place to go regularly, we visited a Presbyterian church, and they recited the Apostles' Creed. I had never done that before. I was like, oh, this is cool. But that was as historically anchored as that service was going to be. Pretty soon everybody was screaming, and a woman got up behind the pulpit to preach the word, and we walked out. I was like, that Apostles' Creed... This is not enough. It's not good enough. So when you go to worship at a supposedly Reformed or Presbyterian church, you're not going to get word-filled worship. And it's definitely not going to be regulated by Scripture at all. There's not going to be substantial reading of the Bible, expository Christ-centered preaching of the Bible. You're not going to be singing the Bible. It's just not there. It doesn't matter what denomination the church is in. They're all the same, which is interesting because we went to, we visited the First Baptist Church. We visited a Presbyterian, Presbyterian church. The word union was in the name. That should, have been a, <laughs> that should have been a warning sign to me. We visited the Presbyterian Church of a Philippines congregation. That's where we've been attending. We went to all these different ones. We went to an independent 
evangelical Calvinistic kind of megachurch chain over there. There's no substantial difference between any of them. Their actual position that they claim to have doesn't make a bit of difference in the way they do things. Yes? In, in the uh, you know, so-called Presbyterian and Reformed churches there, they still hope to the Roman take on the Lord's Supper for the Mass? Um, no. Some churches like the, uh, the ones who will be anti-credal and anti-confessional, the non-denominational, denominational churches, will be very explicitly against the Roman Catholic views, in, including the Lord's Supper. And even, even in the Presbyterian churches over there, they won't compromise, at least for themselves, when it comes to transubstantiation. But they won't necessarily say it's wrong. Where, where we are, they tend to be very friendly and very accommodating toward Roman Catholicism. They'll say what the Roman Catholics believe, maybe, and then just move on without saying whether it's biblical or not. They have this agree-to-disagree attitude, like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, the Protestant Reformation was unnecessary, <laughs> pretty much. Um, so they, you know, what they actually believe, it's, it's hard to tell because they won't really take a firm stand on, on certain things. They might use a historical form of words for the explanation of the Lord's Supper, but whether there's really any other understanding of that, I don't know. It, it's hard to tell. Officially, no, but the official position never matters with, with what happens on the ground every Lord's Day in church. So, for the past three years, there hasn't been preaching. If ever there was a sermon, it was totally by accident. That much is clear. Um, worship hasn't been, you know, acceptable worship, as we would understand it according to our standards. And part of that is because, well, the major part of that is because the pastors have been trained to do it, because the ones doing the training don't do it either. It's, this is the system that's been going on for the last 30 years. Claiming to be confessional, trying very hard to be contemporary, like the mega church that I used to work at, doing it very badly, <laughs> having sort of a blend between them. And so what happens is you have a very weak theology, very weak church, weak congregation. No room for growth, really, because the means that we were given to grow as a church are exchanged for other things. So this is where we live. That's a shot of the boulevard in Dumaguete City in Negros Oriental. I love it. It's wonderful. It's not giant and congested like Cebu or Manila at the same time. It's not completely a province, so it's, it's not like a small town, really. It's sort of halfway in between. That's where we are. And unfortunately, in the history of at least Western Presbyterian and Reform missions in the country, the middle part of the country is never, ever given any attention. I don't know why. 
My guess it's because of population density. You want to go where a quarter of all the people are, and that's why everybody and their mom goes to Manila to do missions work. The rest of the country, Visayas area in the middle, doesn't get anything, at least from Western Reformed and Presbyterian missions. There's a little smattering of it in the very bottom of the country in Mindanao, but the middle, never. And so there aren't any confessional churches where we are. And there, in all likelihood, never have been. Those are, are only in Manila for the handful of them that are actually there. So the health of the church over there is not good. Theology is not the priority. The Presbyterian form of government is not the true operating system of the church. It's more Episcopal and informal at that. There are no elders, none, and these are Presbyterian churches. Rarely will you have an actual ordained pastor. There might be one or two for the area and over a dozen other churches, but only one or two ordained ministers. And women are allowed to pastor and church plant. Corporate worship is not reformed in its elements and is not limited to what God prescribes. Preaching, when there is preaching, is not sequential exposition and is often not even Christian. And biblical ethics are not taught or abided by. So as far as a mission field, that is one. Most definitely. It needs it badly. I have a good friend who's a ruling elder in the Reformed Church of New Zealand who has interacted with several churches all over the country in the Philippines. And he asked this one pastor I know if he was taught or studied the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith in seminary. And he used the acronym WCF. He's like, you, you study this in seminary. The guy was like, what's that? What's the WCF? Like the Westminster Confession of Faith. He's like, no, no, what is that? I haven't read it. This is the pastor of a Presbyterian congregation. That's not a unique situation. That is the way things are done. And during one of the um, Masters of Divinity classes taught by the faculty of that denomination's seminary, the professor was teaching church government. And so one of the students asked the question, you know, there's the ordination vow that ministers have to take that they actually believe the Westminster Standards to be the system of doctrine contained in the Bible and that they're not going to go out of bounds with it. Those are the guardrails on our theology, doctrine, and ethics and practice. So what about that ordination vow if they've never even read these things? And the professor, kid you not, said, as long as they've taken their seminary classes, they can swear to that vow, and it's okay, even if they've never read it. <laughs> it's like, well, what do you expect to get when you operate that way? You're not going to have a confessional church. You're not going to have a church at all, let alone a confessionally Presbyterian one. So that's the system as far as Presbyterianism is concerned over there. None of my seminary students knew the standards, never heard of them. The greatest attempt that was made in seminary for these students before they went on to their master's is a class on the shorter catechism. 
And these are people who are supposed to be pastoring. They're learning the, all that they would attempt to do is learn the standard that children would be learning as they're catechized. That's as far as it went. And wouldn't even complete it in their course of study. So, as a result, with an unqualified ministry, without confessional training, the church itself is not going to be confessional. The worship isn't going to be true and acceptable worship. And as a result, nobody's going to grow in that system. There's no word, sacrament, prayer that's substantially filled with the word because there's no standard by which to hold the worship up to. And so the result is a very immature church body. People aren't raised and discipled into maturity. The gospel is not central in the ministry. And so naturally, the people don't know what difference the gospel makes in their everyday life. They're not going to think Christianly and live Christianly in every department of life. Yes? It sounds so bleak. Do you, for all the, the years you have been here, do you see progress? Obviously, you must have done. Yeah. Even if I didn't, I'm a stubborn person, and I will not stop. <laughs> yeah. Hmm? How are you guys specifically speaking in that culture? I'll get, I'll get there in, in a little minute. Yes, there, there are little pinpricks of, of light just within the last three years, within the last three years. But yeah, it, it, is, it is bleak. And like I said earlier, the, the overwhelming attitude to anything more to reform discipleship is apathy. The majority of Christians are simply indifferent, which isn't completely their fault. I mean, the church has hardly been worth their attention all this time. If, if you go to sit in a room with a bunch of people, sing really bad songs, a really poor imitation of a rock concert, have like 30 seconds of prayer from this person who's supposed to be shepherding you, have a practical message, you can get something more helpful at a self-help seminar. It's like, okay, big deal. What difference does it make? And so to spiritual things, to Christianity in general, people are going to be indifferent because it hasn't really been worth their time at all up until this point. Church has just been irrelevant and boring despite sincere efforts to make it relevant, contemporary, exciting. You see, when the church always tries to copy the world's methods, they do it so bad. It's like you can't. Stop. Don't even try. Even if it was acceptable to do that, you're not going to do it as good as they can. And so it totally backfires. And so the real work of the church and what Christianity should be is dismissed because of the really bad, poor representation of it that people have encountered their entire lives. And we know what that's like here in the United States. People see a caricature of Christianity and are like, I don't want that. 
to them, that's what Christianity was, and they, and they dismiss it. You have to come along and say, hey, no, <laughs> I don't want that either. And that's, that's not right. That's not biblical. So that's the dilemma. So our work, what we've been doing for the past three years is a lot and a lot of teaching in several contexts. When I first arrived at this congregation in the Presbyterian Church of the Philippines, that's the largest so-called conservative Presbyterian denomination there, the pastor was ecstatic that, I was, that we were members of a PCA church. I ended up offering to teach Sunday school. I said, I'll teach the shorter catechism if you want me to. Yes, please. And after that, because I was teaching it there, they offered me a position teaching at their high school. They also have a Christian school. And one of the required classes in the educational system in the Philippines is called values education. And because it's mostly a Roman Catholic country, that class is going to be Roman Catholic moralism, you know, values, family stuff, manners, don't do this, don't do that, that kind of thing. I said, well, being a supposedly Presbyterian church that started this school, I'll teach a shorter catechism there. Give them what to believe concerning God and what duty he requires of you. And so I, over a two-school-year two period, we teach the catechism, first half, second half. And so teaching high school class is also what I've been doing. And then, because I was doing that, I was also offered to teach at the seminary. And all of my students were in some form of pastoral ministry already. But the way missions has worked over there for decades is putting the cart before the horse and giving people responsibility in the church without any training whatsoever. And so it's always remedial education. It's always sort of catching people up. And so I was teaching pastors at the seminary, Bible classes like the historical books, major minor prophets, poets, uh, apologetics, evangelism, and discipleship, and the Westminster Standards. Like I mentioned earlier, all that was attempted, attempted and not succeeded at, was teaching pastors the shorter catechism and never finishing it. So, well, that's not enough. First of all, we have three standards. Yes, sir. Did I understand that, that there is a seminary that you're teaching at? Is that, is that what I heard? Yeah. Yeah, there's more than one. How many, how yeah. many uh, participants or students do you have? The most students I had at one time was, I think, six. And the reason for that is because this seminary was only a couple years old. The other seminary for the denomination there has been there for 20 or 30 years. And so all the student traffic goes through that seminary. And so the seminary I was teaching at actually had to close for a period of time just because there were no students. They all go to the, the other one that's been there forever. Yeah. So I taught the Westminster Standards because they're supposed to be pastors and they need to know, you know the whole system of doctrine that they're going to need to swear to eventually and cover all the bases. So I taught the shorter catechism, the larger catechism, and the confession in harmony all at one time in... 15 weeks. I did it twice. Actually, I did it for some, for some more people after, afterwards. So a lot of teaching. Because basic instruction, I mean instruction in the basics, is really what's needed over there. We approach the context like we're starting from zero, because in many ways, you know, we are. 
It's actually worse than that. We have to demolish a whole lot of bad theology and practice first <laughs> before we can teach what actually is historic, reformed Protestantism. And so over the last three years, there has been some positive results of our work. Our, our high school students love the fact that they finally had some teaching about the Bible that was substantive. They actually were able to get answers to their questions, especially the question of how do you know you're saved? I can't count how many times we got asked that. And if you know anything about Roman Catholicism, you know what a important question that is coming out of Rome. Rome denies the assurance of salvation totally, apart from special revelation. And so we get asked all the time by these Roman Catholic kids, you know, how do I know? We're dealing with practical, street-level things. They had been going to a Christian school since they were in preschool. Never heard any of these things. Anything as fundamental as the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Substitutionary atonement. Christ fulfilling all righteousness and paying for our sins, what justification is. You don't get more basic than that. You don't have that, you don't have Christianity at all. They're going to a Christian school. All of this was new to them. And so with, the, with our high school students, there was um, a huge impact with them. Getting responses like, this, this makes it all worth it. I've been lied to all my life. Yes, you get it. Absolutely, growing up in a Roman Catholic context. And supposedly being discipled by Protestants who didn't do anything at all to make a difference. Former high school students, when the, the education system is shifting a bit over there to sort of match the United States, and so instead of graduating from high school at 16 and going to college right away, they'll go to 11th and 12th grade now. And for that, a few of our students went to one of the uh, famous Roman Catholic senior high schools in town. And they don't mess around. They, they teach them philosophy and Roman Catholic theology. I mean, th these were kids who were 15, 16 years old being told what the column cosmological argument for the existence of God was. And I know adults who won't even give the time of day to something like that. Complex things. High school students are more than capable of understanding it. It's, it's a matter of whether you're going to make the effort or not. But they're getting just hit in the face with Roman Catholic philosophy. I was like, sweet. They end up sending us pictures of their textbooks for, for some help with their, with their homework. And I'm like, wow, look at that. One of the things that we struggle with over there is a really low bar when it comes to educating and discipling people. Lowering the bar always. Oh, we don't want to complicate things. You know, just, just keep it simple and gradually we'll build up, which is a complete lie. There's never any escalation whatsoever. And it almost seems like they have this view that people are stupid, and so we shouldn't even try to give them sound, in-depth theology and practice from the scriptures. And it's not just children who are treated this way. It's 
grown adults, their parents and grandparents, who are taught this way. People who were you know, elderly and in their 70s and 80s hadn't even encountered the level of the shorter catechism in all their years at church. That's the way things are done over there. And so the constant thing is, oh, you know, you shouldn't really make them try hard or think hard or have any level of complexity whatsoever. Lo and behold, some of our high school students who had been in our class and gone through the entire shorter catechism with us, they go to 11th grade and they're getting hit with philosophy stuff that they're actually going to be doing more of at university. Like, people forgot that there's philosophy in university anymore. And I'm like, there it is. And who do they call for help when they're hit with this stuff? My wife and I. Because we took the time to teach them more and actually prepare them for real life where they live. And so that was a tiny bit of vindication as far as our efforts in actually building these people up with what the Bible says. The, uh, the best results, though, however, though they're small, were with those who are supposed to be pastoring. One said to me repeatedly that nobody would disciple him if we hadn't showed up, which is true. I, I knew that. This guy is a... His father is a minister. This young man is a grown man getting his master's degree. Hasn't read the Bible <laughs> from cover to cover, not even once. Had no idea what the shorter catechism was. Hadn't been catechized, hadn't been discipled whatsoever. And his dad's a pastor. Now, by inference, think of what regular church attendees, what their condition is going to be. If the pastors over there aren't even discipling and catechizing their own children, really, what's the rest of the congregation going to be like? And so, just realizing how unprepared for ministry, being given responsibility already he was, is a huge leap. If people don't think they need it, they're not going to want it. Being confronted with the need is a huge part of the, of the process. And then after that, getting excited about actually learning something for the first time in their life. Another one of mine at the, uh, at the seminary, he told me, you know, if you weren't here teaching me what you know, real Presbyterianism actually is, after I graduated, from the seminary, I'd do what all the rest of the pastors here do to learn how to preach. I'd watch Joel Osteen. It's not funny. No, it is funny. But at the same time, it's that is so bad. And he was talking about the other Presbyterian pastors. He wasn't talking about just, you know, generic prosperity gospel people. He was talking about pastors that are supposed to be Presbyterian. It's like that's that was the plan. To learn how to preach better. I'm going to watch these prosperity gospel preachers because that's how equipped the pastors are. And so the fact that something substantial was finally being done was greatly appreciated, especially when I ended up bringing (laughs) textbooks 
if you can believe it or not, textbooks were a novelty in my class, something that they could take home for themselves, a copy of the standards, their first ever when I, when I taught them to them. And when I taught apologetics, thanks to the Gospel Coalition's Theological Famine Relief, you can order books, buy the case for free and only pay for shipping, I was able to give them uh, a textbook for their class. So they actually had something to leave seminary with, take with them and use for the rest of their ministry. Normally they don't get that. It's not like here in the United States where you graduate from seminary with a library in tow. Not over there. Not at all. And so one of my students at the, at the end, one of the things I do is ask for feedback at the end of every semester. And one of them said, you know, it's clear that you obviously care for our minds and that we actually learn something because you prepare a complete syllabus for us to use in class. You provide textbooks for us to take with us. It's obvious you care just because of the effort you put in. It's appreciated. Some will see it as a burden. Some will figure out, hmm, if, if this is what the rest of my life is going to be like, I don't want to do it. That's a good thing. They need to realize it now <laughs> if they don't want to be in this. But the ones who truly want to be ministers, they latch onto it and they love it. I remember one of my students, I gave him the uh, truce victory over error, the first commentary on the confession of faith, and a copy of the Presbyterian Standards by Francis Beatty. He held them in his hands. He's like, it was the first books he's been given as a seminary student. And he was like gradu graduating in a year or two. He's like, I'm going to take these back to the mountains and I'm going to teach them. I was like, that's exactly why I gave them to you. Exactly. You got it. And one of my students, he's a former student. He was ahead of everybody else. He's been using my Westminster Standard Syllabus constantly ever since. He, be, being the pastor of his little congregation there, hours away from where we live, he has single-handedly turned his little church around. He was determined in the year 2017 to teach his congregation the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. They had never heard of these things before. They didn't know what sola scriptura was. Believe that. They're not just generic Protestants. They're supposed to be Presbyterian. Never heard the five solas, something as basic. On the contrary, the pastor they used to have taught them about purgatory, as in believing it. Not just what it is, but taught them something like purgatory. And so these people have been in church for 10 years, never knowing something as fundamental to the faith as Scripture alone is the authority, is the rule for faith and practice. And they're like, Pastor, I think you're teaching us theology. It sounds ridiculous, but that's the way it is. Since then, he's, since then, he's taught through the Ten Commandments. He's teaching through the Apostles' Creed right now. He, he messaged me on Facebook every once in a while and says, I'm still using your syllabus from the Westminster Standards class. I was like, excellent. And he'll ask me for other stuff. And I send him monergism.com links all the time because there's actually so much available out there to use. He's definitely the one I'm, I'm most proud of. His initiative is, is really why 
he's continuing to go so far because he cares, and he cares about his people. There was another guy at, uh, at a Good Friday service. What we do is the seven final sayings of Jesus are divided between different guys, and we preach for like 20 minutes on them. One of my students, who I did not have for preaching class because I didn't get to teach it yet, had uh, the one before or after me. He was sitting next to me on the stage, and I asked him, what kind of sermon are you going to be doing? He's like, expository. I was like, you better. He's like, yes, sir. I was like, say what the text says. He did. His was actually a sermon, contrary to the two ordained individuals who were there who had 60-plus years of ministry experience on him and multiple seminary degrees. Academics means next to nothing over there, in the same way that ordination means next to nothing over there. This student hadn't even graduated seminary yet, and he could preach an expository sermon. He could tell you what the text says, preach the gospel. You, you think it'd be hard to miss the gospel in a text where Jesus is on the cross? I assure you, it can be done. And it's horrible. I hadn't even had this guy for a preaching class. When I teach my Bible classes, the historical books, the poetic books or whatever, I don't give them written exams. I give them teaching practicums, expository preaching assignment. I say you need to interpret the text, you need to connect it to Christ, and you need to apply it to your people. That's as bare minimum as you can get and still have a sermon. They have to do that several times a year. And he learned the ABCs and was able to actually preach the Bible. I said, you know, It'll be nice if you know these Bible stories, but you're not just attending church. You're the one supposed to be teaching other people. You need to know how to handle the text. Teaching them the basics, something that fundamental, it really does make a difference, and it makes a difference for their people. Those two guys, those two pastors, they're not ordained. They don't have a master's divinity, but they're doing the job better than those who do over there. And I you know it makes a difference to the people sitting in the pews every Sunday. Now they're actually getting the Bible. Now they're actually getting more than one verse or a fragment of the text. Not only that, they're getting what the text itself actually means. Not, you know, cultural values, manners, family values, Roman Catholic doctrine. It's making a difference. And if it makes a difference in the lives of those people sitting in the, in the chairs, isn't that the whole point? <laughs> That's the whole point of what we do. And so it's tough, it's slow, it's tedious, and yeah, it's bleak because there's not many of us working over there. And the rest who are aren't in our part of the country. So we need your prayers, we need your support so we can stay there and continue trucking along forever, you know, until I clock out of life. This is what we're going to be doing. So we go back on April 6th, and I'll be focusing particularly on pastoral training and education. Not in the seminary, but the, the pastors are made to continue taking certain subjects throughout the year in like a seminar format, and I want to get in, get in on that and prepare the basic things like Bible study, methods, hermeneutics, homiletics, the doctrines of grace, 
fundamentals that they should have learned in seminary but didn't. That's what we're going to be doing, as well as myself, like them. I need to complete my education, and so I'm going to be doing general ed classes online with the strong encouragement and support of the session. I'm completing my, my bachelor's degree and then going on to a, a master's from a seminary, all online, not moving. I'm going to be doing it simultaneously. So how much time do we have left? Are we terribly late? We're done? Okay. I'm here today. Feel free to ask me questions when there's a second.